I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. On this show, we're discussing why we fight. It's coming up right now. Why we fight. Our desire to fight, our desire to conquer, our desire to impose our will on other people. Could we go back to Alexander the Great or Hannibal or Julius Caesar and sort of looking at the tactical, operational, and strategical impulses and theories of these particular people and why they did what they did. Is that possible? Yeah, I think you have to sort of answer that question as you look at the greater increase in civilization, the reasons for fighting change. I think in the beginning, obviously, fighting was to uh, protect you know, the tribe, to protect your hunting preserve, your area. Then it probably evolved to conquest and great societies emerged like the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks. It was about conquest. And I think that held true pretty much up until maybe the Peace of Westphalia. And then we began to establish the sovereign state with certain internal rights. And in, in a way, it didn't diminish the sort of conquest, but it sort of recognized that there had to be a common accepted way we viewed each other. So it, it, we didn't do as much of that, maybe. And it wasn't particularly the dominant reason, except we had outliers like the Nazis and, and others that came along. And then I think you saw people like Woodrow Wilson, uh, George Marshall and others that really felt we needed to find a way to diffuse the reasons for fighting. He proposed the League of Nations, Wilson, then we established the United Nations. Could we find a way to get out of that? Where we are today, we would like to believe in, especially democracies and free nations, that we don't fight for conquest. We fight to defend ourselves. Now, when I was researching for one of my books, I wanted to find out the reason we in the United States fought. And so then I said, let me look at all the times we've fought. And that's hard to pin down because mm -hmm. we've committed military forces in small numbers and in large numbers a lot of times. But I came up with probably about 300 times that we, and I'm sure there's more, that we committed force for some reason. And if you look at our Constitution, which is supposed to inform us on when and under what conditions and how, when we commit force, we really don't adhere to it. There's only five times in our history we declared war. Yet we've had plenty of wars that were undeclared, but we fought them. And plenty of times we fought significant campaigns, interventions without anything like a declaration of war. I mean, Vietnam, Korea, you know, Iraq. Uh, you know, so you look at the reasons and they weren't purely defensive. You know, we changed the Department of War to the Department of Defense after World War II to sort of signify we actually changed the eagle holding the arrows and changed which talent they had them in to show the peace uh, mm -hmm. olive branches were more important. But we still, you know, we went into Iraq. Iraq didn't attack us. Uh, there was no proof of uh, weapons of mass destruction. And we even had an out. I mean, thanks to Colin Powell, the inspectors were back in, couldn't find anything, and we still insisted on going to war. So, you know, we still haven't really figured out under what conditions we should use force. And, you know, I think I told you before, I was impressed with listening to a show that had all the living former White House chiefs of staff. And one of them had said, and I forget which one, 
when asked the question, what was the most significant thing you learned in your job? He said, how easy it is to use the military. You know, it's, it's scary. It's just a you know, knee-jerk reaction. The temptation is great for presidents because we have such a powerful military, and then we get bogged down and mired down into how we use force. I think also conflict has changed. There are theorists that would argue, especially Rip Van Riper and others, the nature of conflict doesn't change. It's, it's immutable. It's fundamental. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to argue that. But the forms certainly change. You know, we went from... Uh, conventional war to the potential of nuclear war, which made conventional war almost obsolete. And then we went to counterinsurgency or insurgency wars and counterinsurgency guerrilla wars. Now we have terrorists and counter-terrorist conflicts. We have instability around the world that, you know, is warlords and movements and diasporas of people that conflict with others. So what defines a conflict? It's, uh, we went through this in the 80s when this stuff was really heating up. And, and then it really increased after the fall of the Soviet empire. We were trying to define this. We were calling it irregular warfare, uh, military operations other than war, low intensity conflict. We kept changing the names. We, we couldn't even name it. In my mind, it's conflict, this instability with violence mixed in in some way. And that is what caused us to employ the military. And rules of war that we've laid out in conventions and in our doctrine and everything, they don't necessarily apply or fit to these other kinds of uh, forms of conflict that we experience right now. So, you know, I think the reasons for fighting maybe have changed throughout history as man has evolved. Uh, I think the forms have changed in many ways. Sometimes we go back and repeat the forms in many ways. I, I can see now in parts of the world, it's almost back to tribal conflict. Uh, so I don't think there's one way you can define it. And I think as soon as you go in to say, why do we fight? You're going to find out that there's so many different reasons. And some of them we shouldn't be proud of, you know. And, and some of them were actually tremendous miscalculations by our leadership, places like Vietnam and elsewhere, misunderstanding of the situation. You know, others were probably noble. I think probably... You know, World War II, we took on a noble cause. We were, unlike our allies, the British and the Russians and the Chinese, we weren't after colonies or conquests. And, and so there might be more honor and nobility in what we did there than maybe elsewhere. Talking about World War II for a second, in terms of what was happening with the Spanish Civil War in, between 36 and 39, do you think in retrospect we should have gotten involved no. in Spain? I, I First of all, I think... Before Pearl Harbor, it would have been difficult to get involved because we still had the carryover of the post-World War I, excuse me, isolationist attitude toward all this. So I don't think you could have gotten congressional support for that. And to that point, I think presidents were more reluctant to challenge Congress on the right to declare war. I mean, that would have been a declaration of war. You know, after World War II, uh, especially when we gave more leeway to the president because we, we felt the president might have to make a decision. We don't have time to go to Congress. Presidents began to take more power on making war. Vietnam kind of, uh, and Korea made us step back, and now we have the War Powers Act, and presidents have violated the law in terms of the War Powers Act. Both Clinton and uh, Reagan did. I mean, after 60 days, you got to go to Congress. Congress has found ways to control it because they pull the money, you know, the purse. That's why we don't have like an operational fund 
so the president can't get too adventuresome and not have to worry about funding the war. You got to go to Congress eventually. So the mechanism hasn't even been straightened out. I think the Spanish Civil War, because it was a civil war, didn't tempt us to get involved. I mean, nobody crossed another border to, to attack somebody. So I, I think it was pretty clear we didn't have a dog in that fight. Had there been more of a communist movement, might have been tempting to get involved in some way. Maybe not directly, but maybe providing weapons and arms like we did to the British and others. But I think because it was purely a civil war, the temptation wasn't there for us to intervene. Since we're talking about World War II, let's just, if we can stay there for a moment. The rise of Hitler, how you sort of viewed that, the, the reasons for it, and, and did it make any sense? Well, I think the roots of the causes that led to Hitler's rise are in the aftermath of World War I, because the Versailles Treaty was inordinately punishing of Germany. And the French, uh, the British, the Italians, all the victors in World War I, they weren't listening to Woodrow Wilson, who was prescient in, we need to change the way we're doing business in the world, and you can't, you can't do this to a country like Germany or a nation like Germany, and we need to stop this uh, land grab. I mean, part of it, you know, the French grabbed part of Germany, the German possessions and colonies in Africa scoffed up by others. And, and I think uh, that whole punishing of the defeated in such a heavy way created such resentment that uh, I think it was inevitable that Germans were going to look for somebody that was going to reinstate their pride and demonstrate that World War One was a punishment and one they had to grow out of and live out of. So, you know, Hitler becomes very popular. I mean, you got a country that's destroyed economically, that's uh, shamed, you know, it's a, it's a powerful country innately anyway. And so people start listening to him, especially in the beginning, because they didn't know who he was going to become. I think after they realized he's becoming that way, they looked the other way, I mean, in many ways. And of course, Hitler found a very convenient way of blaming the Jews and, and the allies and you know, who all became his, his enemy later on. You know, I, I think it's clear that the aftermath of World War One. that's why Marshall and Roosevelt had learned the lessons from that. And you saw the Marshall Plan the rehabilitation of Japan by MacArthur, you know, they realize that you, you don't beat your enemy into the ground. You, you rehabilitate your enemy and it makes for a safer, more balanced and stable world. And I think it was a lesson from World War I that we grew to understand after World War II. So do you think when, when Hindenburg made Hitler chancellor, was there a sense that you get a sense that, uh, that they underestimated him? I think partially underestimated, and I think partially everybody liked this sort of bringing back a sense of pride and honor, and so they liked that. But I don't think Hindenburg had a choice. I think he was an old man. I think uh, he understood where the, the political winds were blowing, and had he not, I think Hitler would have eventually taken that position. So I think Hindenburg maybe thought there's a way of controlling him if you get him in power rather than on the outside fighting to come in. But I think by then Hindenburg was ir irrelevant. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think he was the winds of change were too great in Germany at that time. And, and it was evident that uh, Hitler and a combination of the ruthless things he did, you know, with the Nazi party and, you know, the brown shirts and. Uh, the SS and all that, uh, coupled with the popularity he was gaining because of the message, one, of blaming everybody for all of Germany's problems, two, saying we can be great again and we can come out of this. And, you know, I mean, it was a masterful 
piece of uh, propaganda and the trappings around it were such too. I mean, I always look at the German uniforms compared to everybody else. Something so simple. They look like tough ass military, you know? I mean, you know, jack boots and gray uniforms and the helmets and which you can't mistake, you know, the goose step. I mean, they had the trappings of saying we are, you know, this was sending a message. It's interesting. I was out in Nuremberg and I was out at the stadium that Hitler used. That's used where they had those massive rallies and they brought everybody together. The flags and the torches. I mean, this thing was, it was a masterful piece of showmanship that uh, allowed this to happen. You're there and you can see that the stadium is not all there. I mean, there's remnants of it, but it's not all there. So I asked a prominent historian there. He said the German government quietly, deliberately never let that stadium come back to its full use because it's too symbolic of that. And the fear is right-wing parties or neo-Nazis will use that as a rallying point. It became so significant. It's a geographical symbolic representation of that, and they wanted to diffuse that. So they broke apart the stadium, never to be put together like that. Really? I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. So again, I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. Do you think anything could have been done to stop World War II? I mean, I know Chamberlain came back talking about peace in our time and, and this, you know, sacrifice in Czechoslovakia. Do well, you... the trauma of World War I, the amount of lives lost, the devastation, is still fresh in their mind. I mean, it, it's only you know, two decades removed. And so I think you you saw most countries not even wanting to think we could have a repeat of that. I think that's part of it. I think, secondly, they underestimated Hitler. And so they were willing to buy in to the peace in our time business. You know, and and you had enough grayness, like Czechoslovakia. We say, well, he gave away Czechoslovakia. He actually gave away the Sudetenland which is basically Germans lived in the Sudetenland. So in a way, I'm not saying they should have, but they could have in their own mind compromised. Okay, he wants the Sudetenland. It is German. Germans are living in the Sudetenland. I talked to somebody whose parents were in the Sudetenland, and there were cases of the Germans being treated badly by the Czechs in the Sudetenland. So, you know, there probably was enough to say, okay, maybe this satisfies and not wanting to go into another war like they experienced just two decades before, a generation before. They wanted to believe it. I mean, that Stalin cuts the deal with Hitler and thinks it's okay. We're not, you know, we won't fight. We made the deal. You know, then they get into nasty stuff like splitting up Poland, which and Stalin learns a bad lesson about Hitler. It's hard to figure out if Hitler, this was all in the design from the beginning, or if he was an opportunist. And so every time something happened in his favor, he jumped on it. He misunderstood the limits to his own power. I mean, the German military bit off more than it can chew. Two-front war. They just did not have the resources, did not have the military power. Uh, plus, Hitler, as the designer of the strategy, was horrible. I mean, he cost them uh, the battles that cost them the campaigns that cost them the war. He did it on the Eastern Front and Western Front, and uh, he overestimated his ability to take on as much as he was trying to take on. I think the German general staff understood that, but they were afraid of him. You know, they tried to take him out a couple times and it didn't work. Do you think it was plausible? Do you think Operation Sea Lion, the idea of invading England? No. 
I don't think it would have worked. I think it would have been a failure. I think, first of all, there would have been great resistance by the British people. Uh, you know, the Churchill's famous speech of fighting in the head on the beaches. But I also think it was a stretch for them to be able to do it. The British still had the most powerful navy in the world, and the RAF was... Although put up against it, they beat off the Luftwaffe. I think Goering overestimated what his Luftwaffe could accomplish. So it would have been a hell of a fight for air supremacy. Definitely the Germans would not have had sea supremacy. And so I think, you know, in the end, probably the one sane thing Hitler did was call off, you know, sea lion that it wasn't feasible. Do you think if, if Hitler had been satisfied... He loses the Battle of Britain. He says, we're not, we're not invading the Soviet Union. We're done. How do you think the war would have taken that? It, he would not have been allowed to keep his gains that he had, I think, especially France. I think, uh, you know, he had Vichy France, but I think there was enough resistance and there was still a, the, the Gauls of the world and everybody else in the French with their own identity. And I don't think that we, the United States, after the Japanese had attacked us and we decided on the Germany first uh, strategy, Churchill certainly would not have backed off and settled for a peace agreement at that stage. So I think it would have taken longer, the war. Had he not attacked Russia, questionable what Stalin would have done if, if Stalin would have gotten involved in the war. I think Stalin at some point, if it looked like Germany was continued to grow stronger and stronger, Stalin wouldn't have trusted him and may have gotten in later. So I think eventually it would have turned out like it did, but it might have been much bloodier and take longer. We could have cut off Germany. I mean, definitely he would have never had a kind of navy that allowed him to project anywhere off the continent. Mm -hmm. And basically, if you control all the trade routes and all the shipping. And I mean, the only thing I could see is that he cut a meaningful deal with Stalin and they both lived up to the commitment. That could have been difficult, you know, made it more difficult. If Stalin remained neutral or if he threw in with Germany, that might have been a whole different case. You know, but I don't think... That could have been possible in the long run because Russia and Germany, the trust there would have never been mm -hmm. that strong. So you talked about your assessment of, of Hitler as a military strategist. Elaborate on that a little bit more. Well, I mean, his biggest blunders were definitely on the Eastern Front. First of all, taking on Russia and opening a two front war. Uh, like I said, he overestimated what his military could handle. They just were not positioned. He didn't have the natural resources. He didn't have the air power to fight a two-front war. Uh, some of that you can blame on Goering, who made promises to him, but he didn't. Secondly, he made operational decisions on the Eastern Front. The German general staff wanted to stay hooked on to the Russian military you know, as they were moving, and they knew they were against a winter campaign. Guderian wanted to take Moscow right away. Hitler made him go south after the oil fields, which allowed Stalin to get his army behind the Urals and then refit and refurbish them. So they never took Moscow. I think had they even gotten close, they would have, the Russians would have repeated what they did to Napoleon. It would have been a scorched earth that they would have inherited nothing. So the, he got himself trapped down in fighting for the uh, oil resources in the south. So when the Russians came back, you have the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of Kursk, and they just couldn't handle the numbers. I think the German general staff realized if you let the Russian army escape and allow them the winner to regenerate their, their force capability, they're going to come back with a vengeance. So that hurt them on that side. I mean, there were dumb operational, dis you know, even the Normandy landing, when they realized it, that that was the actual landing and it wasn't at Calais, and they wanted to call up the operational reserve immediately, which could have been 
devastating for us in the beaches. Nobody could wake up. Hitler was the only one that could commit him. He, right. he, and so he didn't allow his generals the ability to commit him, and no one wanted to wake him up. That's, you know, I mean, <laughs> stupid things like that. Are, you know, that it's hard to say that's a strategic mistake, yeah. but strategically it cost them once we establish a beachhead and a forward beachhead. Well, I'm curious, I, going back for a second to the Soviet Union, do you see under any circumstance where Germany could have defeated the Soviet Union? I think had they, what might have been questionable is logistically, they were defeating the Russians and they were moving. They have winter closing in, obviously, which is a consideration. But the general staff really felt you have to defeat them in detail. You, you can't let them recover. And, you know, Guderian felt taking the capital might have been a morale you know, blow, staying on their military, chasing them down. Hitler veering them off gave them that break. And then the Russian military restructured itself in a very interesting way, a sort of uh, counterbalance to the uh, German approach. The German tanks, for example, were highly sophisticated, highly technical, therefore very vulnerable. I mean, you know, they... They broke down a lot. The T-39s, the Russians could produce those things off the assembly line by the bazillions. So although they may have had inferior tanks, they had the numbers and the reliability and the simplicity. And then, of course, Stalin comes out from the Urals. It's their kind of fighting. It's wintertime fighting. It's tough. It's hard. It's what the Russian peasants are used to and the fighters can bear up under. Uh, It was not what the German machine could do. And again, Goering lets them down because they don't have the air superiority that would allow them to not surrender at Stalingrad and hold them off and the ability to resupply. They didn't have the logistics and the resources and everything to maintain that fight. So the war was over when he, on the, on the Eastern Front, certainly when Stalingrad fell, he lost an army. So do you think strategically, as the Germans advanced east, most of the population, they didn't like Stalin? They sort of saw possibly the Germans being their liberators, but yet the way the Germans then treated the Soviet peasants and the Einsatzengruppens and so on, that that really, maybe if there had been a different philosophy there, do you well, think yeah, help? I mean, it's, it's old hearts and minds stuff. Initially, when the Germans came in, they were well-received in some places, even in Poland, some places, and uh, and in Eastern Europe. But obviously, their heavy-handed tactics, uh, obviously, the way they treated the Jews and, and others, uh, they realized this wasn't going to be any better than Stalin. If not, it was going to be worse. So His whole professed ideology was that they were a superior race which automatically made everybody else inferior, which tells you something. We're never, you know, it's not going to be a better deal if he thinks I'm inferior to, to him. This is a great Aryan race that's coming in. I think Hitler, I mean, you have to look at Hitler as a, a megalomaniac with a horrendous ego that I think early successes made him believe he was invincible. People around him feared him, so no one was going to tell him the truth. I think the army understood what they were getting into, many of the officers, and this was not going to work out. Uh, I think people like Goering sold them a bill of goods, overestimated what they could deliver. I think there were two critical, two critical things that prevented him from being able to do more. One, he overestimated his industrial production. It could not have sustained and supported the two-front war, uh, actually three-front if you look at the southern part too. Couldn't produce the airplanes and tanks and all the and the logistics lines and support. And I think he was doomed once the United States entered the war. Churchill appreciated that. Churchill may have been the happiest man in the world when Pearl Harbor was hit because he got the United States into the war. Mm-hmm. And I think then our industrial production capability 
was a key factor in that the inevitability in his defeat. Even FDR recognized that when he said we we're going to be the arsenal of democracy. We were keeping the Russians in the war through Lend-Lease and the Brits in the war. And so now us coming in with the manpower and the total retooling of our industrial lines to war production, at the height of U.S. production, we were knocking out 4,000 tanks a month off the assembly lines. The Germans couldn't do that at the height of their production in a year. They couldn't produce 4,000 tanks a year. We were can do it in a month. So, I mean, it was inevitable. I'm Adam P. Kennedy. Thank you for joining us. Find more of our episodes at apkcg.com forward slash APW. Thank you for joining us.